Hello, Erica. Hello, Stephen. After a long yet somewhat planned hiatus, we're back. I feel like it wasn't that long. It was about six weeks, I think. Yeah, for us, that <laughs> we go in and out. It's lazy Doctor Who. Anything could happen. That's true. Um, but but once again, Verity's recording schedule beckons, which mm-hmm. has kind of kick-started this back into gear. But we're easing into it. We're not racing towards the finish line in watching a story for you to review on Verity. That is true. Yep. So we only watched episode one of The Ambassadors of Death. The Ambassadors of death <laughs> okay yeah i said it wrong i apologize that's right um i mostly I, as you know i love the story mm-hmm. mostly because of the style in which it is presented mm-hmm. and though that little teaser midway through the opening credits uh with the cliffhanger sting heard for the first time in the series history by the way in this that ear that mm-hmm. bit that was actually part of the original um, theme tune, I think, but it was never used, or I don't know what it was, but uh, but this is the first time it's heard, as well as the end, the little end bit. That was also the first time this is this is heard, but that was certainly on the original master tape, but they never used it until 1970. Wow. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I was... I was surprised at the abrupt cutoff of the opening credits, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, it wasn't a cold open, it was like a... I don't know a, a lukewarm open because <laughs> it's like right in the middle of the opening credits. That was that was very cool, very stylish. Yeah, this is back in the day when uh, the director was essentially responsible for how they presented the opening titles. You know, as you saw in the Ice Warriors and the Seeds of Death, and and uh, and Michael Ferguson who directed this, his third of four Doctor Who stories. One of your favorite Doctor Who directors after his work on. The Seeds of Death, I think, mm-hmm. uh, he decided to go this way. And I applaud his decision, like many of his decisions, in directing this episode. Yeah, I only have one decision that I um, strongly disagree with him on, that there's only one. Well, what's that? So you have this uh, astronaut who's in a, in a capsule, right. who's, who's on a recovery mission. Which is cool. I liked. I did like the the color difference. So like he's kind of like graded all blue, um, and the people on Earth are in full vibrant color. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you have so everybody's in the com what space control space command space command space command, um, and they're looking at him up on a big screen. Yeah. Which is cool, mm-hmm. but then he's like, "Okay, I got to adjust attitude to be able to see the the thing." So he's adjusting, you know, the positioning of his own capsule so mm-hmm. that he can see out and make visual contact with the uh, with the Mars probe. And when he does that, his orientation on the screen sort of flips. Mm-hmm. Um, so is the camera that they're watching on outside of his capsule? That doesn't make much sense to me. It doesn't. I feel like it was sort of a way to sort of give the visual indication that his yeah. position has changed. Mm-hmm. How do you do that without a having to do a, a model shot and basically within camera? And It's right there in the dialogue. Yeah. He says, you know, adjusting attitude. And the funny thing is, is that in the original, like at the very, very, very beginning where he's saying, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then the, um, the doctor, Ch- Ch- whatever his name is, says, you know, you you overshot it, correct two seconds. And oh. he does that. There's oh, no Ralph Cornish, you mean? Yes, Cornish. That's it. Um, you know, please, you know, adjust by two seconds. So he does that and he fixes the error. They don't show us any flippity floppity mm-hmm. for that or change of position or anything. So it's 
only for that one line, which just it just seemed weird to me. That's all. It was. It's not a big deal. No. It just made me snicker. It does set up the rest of the scene where he goes through upside down, according to the camera. Maybe it was a way to sort of say, "Wait a second, what's wrong with my picture?" Mm-hmm. You know, yes, the logic of it doesn't quite mm-hmm. line up, but when we see him next, he's going to be upside down, and mm-hmm. you know, sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, what else? Um, oh, uh, there's lots of stuff to talk about this <laughs> episode for me anyway. Um, is there anything else that, that jumped out for you at all? It's episode one. I, I know how you like beginnings. So Are you, it, it feels very like I have no idea what's happening. Um, mm-hmm. there's a good mystery. I like the fact that many of the characters don't know what's happening and they managed to sort of thicken the plot quite a bit just within even the very first episode so that's that is nicely done mm-hmm. but yeah just right from the beginning i was i was interested from the get-go um and, and it was interesting seeing the news reporter talking directly to the camera which is something that you know i've gotten quite used to and knew who <laughs> happens all the time now uh and the um direct speaking of directing the transition between him talking into the camera and the then his the video of him on the doctor's tv mm-hmm. and like just it was it was nice there's some some nice flair there it was a good transition to uh get to where the doctor is working on his tardis console outside of the tardis apparently i thought that was the tardis yeah. and was freaking out <laughs> me too when i saw it as a kid because that would officially become my favorite yeah. tardis <laughs> because it's just so like lush and well appointed yeah. and like you know these deep colors and it looks real comfortable do not get used to it we have seen the last of it <laughs> that's a bummer i know like that 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 weird uh, uh decoration on the wall that big sort of oval like artwork and then there was like i love the colors of it yep. uh yeah um over the course of um the john pertwee era unit hq and his uh office slash laboratory change a great deal <laughs> it's rare that they stay the same from one story to the next so yeah this is a nice set and we only see it in one episode darn i wonder if it was being used for something else at the same time like was that room a room in some <laughs> evening television drama that was being used for something else and they were just like well we'll just set up the tardis console in the middle of it and use it and that's why it never reappears because it was actually <laughs> taken down because it was used for something else that would be a good question because that's a very lush and wonderful set mm-hmm. to just use for like two scenes essentially in episode one that was exactly my thought like why would you put together something that's that detailed and that mm. cushy yeah. Um, and then just never ever use it again that doesn't make much sense doesn't mm-hmm. forget who did the designing on this one but uh, I'll look for the end credits um, mm-hmm. afterwards in episode 2 or 3 whenever the next one we watch next um, ooh, uh, there's a lot of battles this is actually by Havoc's first uh, credit in Doctor Who and uh, when when you recognize the stuntmen as I do they were basically all there that was like the end of the uh, an Avengers movie, essentially, with all the great superheroes of Havoc uniting for one giant fight scene in episode one. That right there is a 
textbook example of my least favorite kind of scene mm-hmm. in Doctor Who, my least favorite kind of action scene, because I like action sequences when they're like telling you something about the characters. This, the point of this action scene was to have an action sequence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get the uh, mysterious fellow with a red carnation yep. in his lapel saying, you know, hold him off as long as you can. And Mr. Turtleneck, who seems really eager to, uh, to get into a, get into a fight goes out and, um, and then they shoot at each other, pew, 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 until they start running at each other. And then it's, and some Foley. And, um, and yeah, so all it is, is we're, we're just literally watching him hold off unit forces as long as possible. And there's no, that's the only narrative thrust of that fight is that they're just trying to hold him off. They, you know, we cut out things for time. Mm-hmm. Um, for editing purposes in Doctor Who all the time. And that's the kind of thing where I would have been happy with like three gunshots and then, you know, cut to like him coming back. We held him off as long as we can. And now like, yeah, but I can understand that there are people who enjoy that sort of thing. And I'm sure that there are many folks and probably a lot of little, little girls and boys watching it at the time Uh who were very excited to see that kind of action sequence. Um, I was just never that kid. I am not that. Yeah, Stephen's pointing at himself. Yeah. <laughs> I, I am not that kid now. So um, I'm happy for all of you that enjoyed that. I made it through. I think I saw it for the first time when I was 14 because by the time I finally looped down to John Pertwee during my my first initial run of everything, yeah, I was that old. But even then, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I'm... I am happy for you. The adorable look on your face right now almost makes up for having to sit through it. That was great seeing the brigadier here. Just walk into frame and just sort of blow a guy off the staircase <laughs> and boom, boom, like three shots. What a wonderfully choreographed set piece because the, the stuntman has to like dive off. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly done well for, for mm-hmm. what it is. Uh, that and that was very cool like the the kind of low angle mm-hmm. like shooting up at the brigadier who is then sh- literally shooting his his gun at three different people with that tough guy look on his face mm-hmm. although <laughs> earlier i did kind of laugh at the brig um when okay so they're hiding behind these very convenient boxes and things and shooting around them and the brig stands up to shoot from from his yeah. hip and then pops back down. I'm like, okay, yeah, it looks cool, but that's just dumb. Like, that's just, you're putting yourself in the line of fire. And I just, I would like to think that the brig is smarter than that. But I guess he's he's just too cool for school. I do that accidentally in Grand Theft Auto sometimes where I want to <laughs> shoot. And then, no, don't stand up. Stay in cover and shoot. And then mm-hmm. I keep getting shot and I have to go back down and put some body armor on. Every time you can con- consider that now an homage yes. to a Brigadier Lethbridge Stewart. That's true. Mm-hmm. Alistair Gordon. Um, that what what do you think of the doctor? I thought he was very uh standoffish at the beginning when he came into uh um space command and basically demanding everything, and then the brigadier sort of pulls him aside. Says, you know, he's in charge, and all of a sudden he just sort of lightens his tone a great deal. What do you think of that? I I quite enjoyed it. I I want to go back even farther. Uh, the when we very first see the doctor, you know, he's watching the TV, turns it down and then Liz comes in and it's kind of like a, a charming, cute little moment with them with the wacky time travel and, you know, 15 seconds into the future or whatever it is. And it's just, it's nice. Like I didn't expect nice moments like that between the doctor and his assistant. Um, so that was, that was cool. And then, then they head off and, and yeah, like, you know, he, he blusters in, he's the doctor. He's mm-hmm. give me this, give me that. That's, 
That's kind of you know that's that's sort of doctorish in 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 a way. It's definitely more third doctorish than yeah. than other doctors, but it's it's fine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and I was very impressed by how he like it, it was like okay, I'm stuck on this piddly planet, and in order to get what I want, I need to sometimes play by their rules. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he changes his his tack uh, a little bit, and he changes his tack and employs some tact ah. and. Uh, <clears throat> And yeah, and then he, you know, he gets what he wants. Mm-hmm. I mean, until he's threatened with a gun by one of the fellows there at the very, very end. Dun, dun, dun. Dr. Tautalian. Tautalian, that's yeah. the name. Yes. Um, who I suspect is in league with the uh, Carnation um, fellow, but uh, don't tell me. No spoilers. No. Carnation Instant Breakfast, I shall call that fellow until I know what his <laughs> name is. So, so, but yeah, I, I liked the uh, the doctor. You know, he's... He manages at this point to be imperious without being too imperious, too stodgy. Like, right. it doesn't bother me. Um, yeah. So far, he, I like him. This John Pertwee uh, performance reminds me of early Peter Capaldi, both in look and and feel, just because he's that kind of like walking in, like demanding everything and being surprised that he's not being offered everything you know mm-hmm. yeah it does it, it feels very i mean it, almost all of the doctors have their moments where they do something very much like that so it didn't it didn't feel obnoxious in any way to me i mean you know it was a little bit overblown but that but in a way that i thought was entertaining and you know fitting with the the little that we've seen mm-hmm. of the character so far and yeah certainly capaldi asked because he's got the you know the cape with the black on the outside and the red on the inside yeah. which you know makes me think of the Capaldi's black coat with the red on the inside. So, technically navy blue, I think. Was it? Oh well. According to the action figure and the Lego figure that uh, I have. okay. Touche. Yeah. Um. Let's see what else. Oh, I, I wanted to explain because you you thought the music was weird when they during the space sequences. Yeah, all of a sudden it was like we wandered into a 1970s dentist office or something. Like the music was just so blah 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 la la. So what what apparently that is an homage to is that during the uh, BBC TV coverage of uh, probably the Apollo 11 moon landing, I suppose, which was when they were making this probably just a few months ago, and, and indeed like maybe half a year when it actually was, was broadcast, uh, they used. Whiter Shade of Pale by um, uh, Procol Harum mm-hmm. as like backing music either just for the entrance like you know welcome to the BBC and so I don't know if you noticed but the, there, there's a slight feel of that music to the music of the space sequences and that was the intention because of the it'd be yeah I'm serious that's what it was all about and so that's mm-hmm. why Dudley Simpson composed music like that for those sequences I guess I would have to listen to it again because I love Whiter Shade of Pale that is one of my like favorite songs and I did not get that vibe from no. that piece of music at all well there's a descending riff to it and and Maybe. you know there's copyright issues to to maintain I, I here too so. i know i just i don't know when i think of oh, whiter shade of pale it just there's this intensity and that music did not feel intense right. at all so that's that's the thing so like yeah maybe there are some i am not a musician so maybe there are some musical similarities but in terms of emotional heft Mm -hmm. uh i that yeah didn't ring the same for me that's all gotcha i noticed a couple things in there but uh oh what else about this uh this episode the music overall is one of is my favorite dudley simpson score 
by the way. Mm-hmm. We've only heard snippets of it so far. There are other bits in it that I that I quite like because uh, it's it's also the last uh, time that a music score in Doctor Who is recorded before the story is actually produced. Because the next story is stock music, and after that, Dudley Simpson does it in post-production um, without the aid of an orchestra. So it changes very much. This is Dudley Simpson's last great score, in, um, in my opinion. I don't know. I thought I thought some of his stuff afterwards was kind of samey, but uh, this is very distinctive and jazzy and and intense and stuff. Oh, what else can I tell you about this? Um, the 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 two-inch master tape for this exists. It is the earliest surviving videotape master in Doctor Who history. Wow. Yeah. Exciting. I know, isn't it? So it looks really good on the DVD. The the rest of the the episodes uh the whole story was in black and white in my in my day. I was going to say I I for some reason I was expecting it to be in black and yeah. white, which I know is silly, but I was. Yeah. Uh the they I don't think they had the chroma dots on the 16 millimeter black and white film for all of them. And but they did have how they so how they colored I think the Doctor Who and the Silurians for instance they took the the off air VHS recording from the from the mid seventies mm-hmm. in the U S and married the color together with the black and white film editors. the the same person who recorded that also recorded Ambassadors of Death but the tape was a bit wonky mm. so the color will be off a little bit on some of the future episodes before sort of finally kind of rectifying itself, I think, in episode five and maybe seven as well. So Mm -hmm. just a heads up for that. Well, I'm very glad that we had the excellent color in this episode, which is apparently the one time we get to see that amazing room where the TARDIS console is because I just, I am very pleased by that room and uh, the color was a big part of it. Uh, Do you recognize any of the actors that were in this? He asks, so you, so I can tell you. I recognize some of the names in the credits, and some of them looked familiar. I saw John Avenary's name in the credits. Carnation. He's. Oh, I can't. I thought so. Yep. Okay. Wow. I have. I have learned something. Has he been in Midsummer Murders yet? No, but he's okay. been in Robin of Sherwood uh, as uh, Hearn the Hunter. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, then that might be part of where I recognize him from. And then there was at least one other name in the credits that I saw that I was like, oh, that's that's a name that I recognize from Stephen mentioning it. I don't remember what it was, though. Well, Michael Wisher makes his Doctor Who debut. Oh, Michael Wisher. Yes, that was the other name I recognized. Yeah. Duh. He's not reading his lines off an auto cue. He's, he memorized them and is like looking left to right to make it look like he's reading them off an auto cue as the as a news reporter. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that that was Michael Wisher. Mm-hmm. Good for him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm blanking on his name, oddly enough, but Ralph Cornish is played by... The guy who played, uh, this is another name I'm blanking, either it's Toba or Rago, the lead dominator in The Dominators. I thought he looked familiar. I recognized his eyes and I was like, that guy's really good looking, but he looks kind of familiar. Where do I know him from? Now I know where I know him from. He's like, if you take a dominator and make him look human and good looking, Mm -hmm. you get that guy. He's dashing, isn't he? He really is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He's got kind of a um, Clint Eastwood vibe and... Earlier night, like Dirty Hera, uh, Dirty Hera, Dirty Harry Era, Clint Eastwood. I always thought so. Uh, I don't really like Clint Eastwood, so I, I would not want to com- make that comparison because I mm-hmm. feel like it's selling this guy short. Yeah. <laughs> it's the the blue eyes and the darker hair, mm-hmm. I think, 
which which used to be a thing that didn't appeal to me, you yeah. know, aesthetically. And then I started watching Winona Earp and I fell in love with Doc. Uh-huh. So everything in my life has changed. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then the zooms in when he's still, you know, control the recovery seven, do you read me? And the Michael Ferguson pushes it from one angle and then zooms in from another angle. I thought <laughs> just getting all of him, whose name I will remember by the next time we, we, we do this. And then I like how at the next shot to transition, the scene is the camera zooming out from John Pertwee's face, who has just heard the, uh, the sound and is like mm-hmm. transfixed. Ah, oh, there's so many great directorial flourishes in this. I love it. Yeah, I I didn't notice any of those, I have to admit. But um, maybe in the next episode, I'll pay a little more attention to camera movements. Mm -hmm. Or we just watch this one again, and I was pointing them out to you. (laughs) Oh, boy. Or maybe after that one ridiculous camera movement um, uh, with the space capsule, I just decided, you know what, let's just tune out the camera movements, because otherwise you're going to be annoyed. You might be. Or enthralled. We'll find out in the next episode. I mean, as long as they make like logical sense, it's fine because you know obviously the zooms in and the pushes in and stuff like that's that's for directorial effect. Mm-hmm. It's not they're not implying that there is actually a camera in the middle of the room that's moving closer yeah. to his face, whereas on the screen our characters are looking at that screen, which implies that there is a physical camera in space mm-hmm. pointing at the astronaut. So it's just the, the diegetic versus non-diegetic nature of the cameras. That's the only reason that that bothered me. The only reason. Sometimes the line between those, like when you're watching a security camera, for some reason it switches angles at the exact moment you want it to. And it's just <laughs> like, oh, there's multi-cam settings on security cameras, <laughs> but whatever. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes you just have to suspend your disbelief, mm-hmm. which I'm, like I said, it didn't really bother me. It just it just sort of made me giggle. But yeah, but maybe that did sort of just help me. Maybe that is part of why I switched my brain off from paying attention to any other camera motions for the rest of the episode. Wow. Uh, anything else about this episode before we wrap it up? Um, I like Liz's boots very much. I was wondering, yeah, the white boots. Mm-hmm. The rest of the outfit, not not so much what i would like to do if i were to cosplay something from this episode i would take liz's boots and match them up with the sort of silvery dress outfit that uh that the woman whose name i forgot um is is wearing the at scientists the, there yeah in the space control right. it's got like kind of a, a high-ish silver collar and then it's it's a little bit belted and it's kind of short and it's all silver and it's just Ooh. a cute mini dress and i think it would look really good with those white boots so there I think she changed. Uh, Liz uh, might be in for a couple more costume changes Woo. in this story, so so stay tuned for that. That's always exciting. I like it when she changes clothes because it makes sense. Yeah, totally does. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, well, that's it. I'm I'm glad we're, we've started again because I like the story a lot and I like the season a lot. So I hope you do as well, and I won't oversell it to the point where you'll like get disappointed and not want to watch it. Yeah, you're like you're on the you're on the bubble there because you are super excited about this, which I appreciate, and it's very cute. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>